0: Welcome back, everyone. The Halloween Haunts, 365.com, the podcast. I'm Jared. Hi, I'm Tari. Today, we're doing something different. We are going to wrap up our suture, Supernatural segment, per se. Yes. Because we've been on a run. You've seen the Amityville Horror. This might be next, or it might be after another one. I'm not sure yet. But today, we are covering the Warrens. Fact or Fiction? I have my opinions. I'm sure Terry has her opinions. Mm-hmm. We'd love to see your opinions in the comment. Opinion. Nine, nine. But, first off, we got some sponsorship to take care of. The, let's listen to Jimmy J and the Friday the 13th Minicon. Let's do it.
1: Heads get ready for another killer Friday the 13th weekend in Blairstown at the iconic Blairstown Diner. For what? For the inaugural Friday the 13th MiniCon, all hosted by yours truly and the Horror 365 team. I'm telling you, we just have an incredible lineup in store for each and every one of you. Signings and photo ops with various alumni from different Friday movies, screenings, Q and A sessions, a wedding vow renewal segment. I mean, a costume competition. Hell, even a dinner with the alumni. I mean, who does that? So, make mother proud and get your tickets now f13minicon.eventbrite.com that is f13minicon.eventbrite.com come on out for the only Friday the 13th of the year and be a part of the history in the making we'll see you Friday the 13th
0: alright that was Jimmy J and the Friday the 13th Minicon May 13th and 14th Blairstown Diner, Blairstown New Jersey buy your tickets now they're selling out quick so, make sure you get that dinner plate that I've seen advertised lately. Yes. Next up, we got some haunts opening May 13th and 14th. Halfway to Halloween and Friday the 13th, we have Field of Screams. Let's see it. Feel the screams. Looks like it's going to be a good time. It does. We will be at Brighton Asylum, May 14th only, halfway to Halloween. Let's see it. Alright, so that was Brighton Asylum. May I can't f- wait. May 14th, we will be in attendance wearing these shirts. Come say hi. <laughs> now we did do something new over the past couple weeks. This is our early video. We've I've created more since then. But we dropped a store, y'all. So make sure you get your HH365 shit or your Haunt shirts or your Halloween shirts. It doesn't have to be logo stuff, but check it out. Link will be in the comments, let's go! like i said that's an older video where you already have double the stuff mm. up there but just hit the comments the link will be in there we'll set you that way check out some stuff i mean i, I got it set reasonably priced there's some haunt shirts i mean it's hard to come across haunt shirts
1: yes it is and i like my tumbler
0: how's the tumbler working out
1: it's good very cool keep the drink cool. cold haven't tried it hot yet
0: if you guys have any ideas for t-shirts let me know mm-hmm. uh, i'm working with uh, <laughs> chandra soon she makes these little paintings, so we're gonna put them on t shirts. If she ever wants to send me a picture Alright, but let's get into this. You ready to get into this? Yes, right, I am. Enough fucking around. This is the Warrens fact or fiction. Ha ah, There's a lot to there's a lot, a lot of ground to cover in this one. It is. But let's start off with our intro video. get into it edward warren born september 7th 1926 passed away august 23rd 2006 and lorraine rita warren january 31st 1927 died april 18th 2019 Were american paranormal investigators and authors associated with prominent cases of alleged hauntings ed was a self-taught and self-professed demonologist We're going to have another demonologist soon Just saying Someone's going back to school
1: (laughs) I can't
0: Self-professed demonologist, author, and lecturer Lorraine professed to be clairvoyant And a light trance medium Who worked closely with her husband Lorraine does have certificates from universities Saying that she is psychic I guess colleges can prove that I don't know in 1952, the Warrens founded the New England Society for Psychic Research, NESPR, the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. They authored many books about the paranormal and about their private investigations in the various reports of paranormal activity. They claim to have <laughs> investigated well over 10,000 cases during their career.
1: Uh, really? a lot that's a lot i mean maybe they were ones that investigated it but nothing happened well you're talking like 40 years i guess that's possible because not everything is like i guess it could be one and done and out yeah it could be nothing they're still gonna they're still gonna investigate it doesn't mean that there's something there they investigated that's all they say I never thought about
0: this. So they did 250 investigations a year?
1: They no. were busy.
0: <laughs> no. They didn't do 10,000. They did not do 10,000. I think
1: it's a little far-fetched myself, but... Yeah. Well, I mean, they
0: went a little deeper in the 90s, so it would be closer to, like, 200 a year. Okay. <laughs> Moving on. The Warrens were among the first investigators in the Amityville Haunting. As you know from our last film. We will not be covering the Anvity part of this because we already did it. Feel free to go back. Backtrack a little bit. It's part one and two. Excellently done. They were good. The Uh NESPR uses a variety of individuals including medical doctors, researchers, police officers, nurses, college students, and members of the clergy in its investigations. (laughs) Stories of ghost hauntings popularized by the Warrens have been adapted as or have indirectly inspired dozens of films, television series, and documentaries, including several films in the Amityville Horror Series and the films in the Conjuring Universe, which is based on their files. Skeptics Perry DeAngelis and Stephen Novella investigated the Warrens' evidence and described it as Blarney. Really hitting them. This is blurny. (laughs) Skeptical investigators Joe Nickel and Benjamin Radford concluded that the better known hauntings Amityville and the Snedeker family haunting did not happen and had been invented. Reputable hauntings researched. We're going to get into a little bit of each one. We're going to start off with... uh,
1: Can you move that over there?
0: that good
1: yes thank you my eye was going across
0: so we'll start off with annabelle and if you don't know what annabelle looks like by now it looks like raggedy ann she looks like raggedy ann and this is funny we're doing this because last night we just watched tony spira who are the warren's son-in-law yes who now runs the museum or owns the museum move the annabelle doll
1: i have a thing about that too
0: Oh, afterwards. I know. All right. Annabelle. The whole rigmarole of Annabelle began in 1971. The legend starts off with a 28 year old nurse in Hartford, Connecticut. The nurse, whose name remains shrouded in mystery, obtained a three foot Raggedy Ann doll for Christmas from her dear old mom. This thing was huge, plump, and a screen. Pardon the pun. Anyway, after the nurse got over the shock of feeling by far the most age-inappropriate gift for a qualified medical professional, she slowly fell in love for the thing. It could have been worse. Back then, socks were considered great holiday gifts. And I, I thought I wrote down where I got this column from. Well, if you wrote it, great job. But this is not my work. A couple of nights later, Annabelle's owner and her roommate started noticing some weird shenanigans occurring in the general area of the doll. They concluded it was their vivid imagination playing tricks on them. Dismissed the whole thing, but a light bulb went off in their cerebellum and a game was set afoot. The two roommates began to play ghoulish games with the doll. Leave it about the house in different poses as a terror-inducing gag. It became a tradition. Who could pull off the best scare before the start of the shift? Stuff the doll someplace funky and try to spook each other. Sitting on the kitchen table over a bowl of Fruit Loops. On their beds, cuddled on a pillow. Inside the fridge, playing with the frozen carrots. Sounds like Elf on a Shelf. <laughs> yeah. In the shower with a rubber ducky. In a darkened closet with a sun hat. Well, so on and so on. The doll, meanwhile, would not have any of it. Nope, not by a long shot. The doll had gotten a taste of hijinks and wanted more. A week or so into January, the wild, raggedy Ann doll started appearing in different places, and she started to move her arms, or so the girls say. You were going to say something? So
1: I should do that with our Annabelle. I
0: don't care. That's
1: fine. I'll move her around and try and scare Dom and you, and yeah, <laughs> maybe she'll come to life.
0: Yeah. Well, yeah, we got to wait till the demonologist first. Okay. <laughs> Up until this point of the story, the skeptic could make a valid argument. They could dust off the ever-useful Ouija board dispute. It didn't move on its own. Timmy, for the love of God, stop pushing it. But the original owner of the doll was nothing short of the perfect storm of psychosis and triggers waiting for the barometer to drop and cold front to sweep in. Research on the subject seems boring. How, Anyway, the owner was a storm waiting to break. Superstitious, naive, gullible, paranoid, deeply religious, prone to fancy while her friend snickered, Oh dear Lord, Annabelle drank all of a beer, and hid the last chords behind her back. Then there started crossing herself and atoning a quick Our Fathers and reserved to put a stop to it. So they're saying it hid the beer? Mm Mm-hmm. The nurse, frightened and believed that she was the prey of supernatural and demonic forces, flew to a renowned medium. The medium proclaimed that the doll was haunted by the spirit of a little girl named Annabelle. To confirm her findings, the psychic held an occult ritual that closely resembled a seance. Candles, pentagrams, chants, the whole nine yards. They checked for spirits and verified the medium's initial findings. Annabelle was a five year old kid that was once struck and killed by a car right outside the nurse's apartment. How did the... I thought it was haunted before the nurses got it.
1: That's what they say.
0: You're gonna hear a lot of Back and forth with all of this. Like, Just, what the? It's Hell? fine. It's, I'm going to close it up with how I feel behind every story, and I'll let Terry do the same. But let's get into it. The nurse told that the doll was possessed but not violent in nature. She took Annabelle back home and started treating it like a kid sibling she never had. She bought it toys, clothes, jewelry, and candy. The nurse and Annabelle became inseparable. The nurse would confide in Annabelle, take her to work on long car trips to the movies and to the ice cream parlor. Though that part is true, that nurse did do that with that doll. The months passed, and Annabelle slowly but surely started acting crazy, more so than usual. And not just Annabelle, but the area around the doll. The nurses began hearing knocking sounds in their house late at night. Something was trying to get in the walls. They, say f- they saw flashlights, red, yellow, and orange glints off the ceiling in their bedroom. Their bed would shake, rattle, and roll at midnight. The room's temperature would mysteriously drop. The doll ever so often would growl.
1: Oh, lovely.
0: <sighs> One of the nurse's boyfriends, fed up with all the weird events pestering him whenever he came for some fris- frisky business, demanded that they <laughs> burn the damn doll. The straw that broke the camel's back, you ask? The freaky little monster would stand at the door, waiting for the nurse to come back home after their shift. Enough was enough. Fire up the trash can in the backyard. We'll make s'mores over her burning husk. A plan was made. Annabelle, as you can imagine, wasn't too keen on being barbecue fuel. One late afternoon, before the cookout, a scream smacked the house awake. Both nurses come into the living room and notice the future groom, who had been sleeping, wide awake clutching his neck. What happened? I dreamt that this stupid thing was choking me, he pointed to Annabelle. One of the nurses pried his hands apart, and lo and behold, his neck was lined with hand marks and scratches and deep red whelps. The man springs off the couch, grabs the doll, and flings it across the room. The minute Annabelle slides down onto the floor, everything goes insane. Pictures and frames explode off the walls. Chairs roll across the room. The couch flips on its side. The lights bang off and on. Complete pandemonium. Worse still, the finance is... The finance. That's what it says. It's a typo. Yeah. The fiance is slapped across the room by an unseen force. He slams into a window, shattering the paint into pieces. The nurses run out and pick him up. Seven slashes across his belly, shards of glass embedded in him. The window disemboweled him and ripped him wide open. He dies bleeding there on the street. Pretty sure you could prove that. I didn't hear all that before. Scared silly, the young woman called the high something church in Hartford Episcopal. Yeah. Yeah, I leave the religious words to you. <laughs> Who connected them with paranormal investigators and authorities in the unknown? Ed and Lorraine Warren. <coughs> the first red flag in the Warren's investigation was the tall tale the medium shortchanged the nurse with Why would God allow the spirit of a child to possess p- 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 a doll? When you die, according to the Warrens, your time on this plane is done. You either go up or go down, you don't stay for an encore. As such, the Warrens concluded that Annabelle was in fact a demon preying on the young woman's sympathy. A demon that had in fact been released into the mortal sphere by the strange seance. Up until then, Annabelle was just a doll. Nothing more, nothing less. The demon became more and more powerful the more the girls dotted on it. By recognizing it, they were inviting it to go beyond the doll and possess their home. They were granted it might and substance and allow it domination over their existence. The house had become infested with what the Laurens, Warrens <laughs> label a home that has been claimed by an earthbound spirit or de- demonic being. And the doorway was the doll. The hellish creature was bound and anchored to the Raggedy Ann doll. After Annabelle became responsible for a death, the Warrens decided it was best to lock her up. The creature inside was too strong to be exercised It had tasted blood. The demon had been challenged by a mortal and it not only triumphed but groaned fact in the victory. For safety, they decided to lock behind a glass cabinet with trinkets, amulets, ambulances, and runic symbols. Not to mention a huge Do Not Touch sign. And if you look at the actual Annabelle doll... We were found out last night that the wood, the wood stain actually has holy water and holy oils in it, and there's a bunch of hidden crosses throughout. This is there's three
1: crosses on each the top and the side, left and right side, for the Trinity.
0: Yeah, and they have to
1: represent the Father, Son. They have two cases
0: so they could work on it because Tony Spear is now taking Annabelle to. um, uh a a, Paracon.
1: yeah paracon so that's
0: pretty cool i mean you can go see the real annabelle though i'm not going
1: it's cool <sighs> but i don't know if i would want to track her all over now nah. and be in a car with her i don't care if she's in a case or not
0: all right let's finish up the annabelle part annabelle is now captured behind wards and sigils at the new england paranormal research center The center is a cabinet of curiosity of all-battered diabolic and enchanted items, items that the Warrens claim are proof of the existence of the paranormal, and items and doodads too dangerous to mess around with. Annabelle is locked, to this day, in a thick, plexiglass enclosure. Incidents since Harford with students of the occult and researchers, still attest to Annabelle's strength and desire to wreak havoc. Annabelle. They have recordings and eyewitness accounts of the damage she's done. And that was from BostonGhost I did thought of, I because I, you know, I try to give the credit when I could find it. But yeah, that was it's a cute article. So, what are your thoughts on Annabelle?
1: I don't know. Well, some of those stories in there I've never heard of before so i think it's a little far-fetched but i don't know you know i hear so much about annabelle do
0: you believe in annabelle
1: i don't know because (laughs) i'm not sticking around to find out if she's if she's true or not
0: so that would be a yes if you're worried about that doll that, I yes, guess you believe Annabelle's I possessed. Okay? I guess
1: so. I mean she's in the lock case for a reason, unless she's in that lock case just to get publicity. It could be. I don't know. Are you attempting to go touch her and hold her and I would do it. Oh hell no. Because I don't really shit about the Annabelle law. And the one thing about that video we watched last night. He said, you got to make it quick. One case to the next. And he took a sweet old time with that thing. And then he sat there fixing him. Yep. Fixing her, I mean. And he said, well, I got, she's like slumped over. I have to fix her.
0: Well, the one thing I can tell you is the Warrens' story never changed about the Annabelle doll.
1: uh
0: Which is interesting.
1: Right. Which makes me think that she's real. Hmm. Uh, it's... Where are
0: all the other demon dolls, then? Like, how did the Warrens just end up with the one?
1: No, well, everything in that room is supposed to be possessed. I mean, we're not
0: talking about the room. No, I'm just saying. We're talking about
1: That was the other thing. They're in there with all these other things. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't know. For a minute there, I was thinking that it was all a bunch of maloiki.
0: What is maloiki? <laughs> no, I'm, uh... With Annabelle Dillon going fake, there's too much contradictory between the um, other side stories.
1: Okay. So you would actually touch her if you were given the opportunity. Yep. I'm not taking that chance. (laughs) I got enough bad luck. Uh, It's
0: just, like, I believe some of the Warren stories, and there's a lot I don't believe in. And Annabelle, I've been thinking about for a long time, and... Just not feeling it. Because if demons can possess that doll, there'd be a lot more demon-possessed dolls around. Because it's a way closer. But yet there's her and, like, Robert the doll. And Robert the doll is said to not even be a demon. So they just have the one demonic doll ever.
1: The one and only. In the billions
0: of years of this universe. Yeah, okay. That's- I'm
1: still not... Ta- I'm still not...
0: That's fine, I'm not making you go touch Annabelle. Alright, so now we're going to move on to another fun one. This is the Perrin family. Of course, you all know the story from The Conjuring. Let's get into this a little bit. So, first off, let's show off the Perrin family and their house. I gotta find it. Hold on. Oh, please. Alright, so... You could talk while I'm doing I'm this. I'm sorry. You know. I was joining. <laughs> All right. So here's the Perrin family. It's a lot of girls.
1: That is a lot of girls. Five girls. Look cute in their little Sunday dresses.
0: Yep. <laughs> and this is the actual Perrin house, which is right here. Big house for that day. Yes. I didn't realize it was like a lob cabin type deal, is it? I yeah, didn't realize. Maybe it's just the siding.
1: I think it might be a, the fake log cabin. I
0: like the siding's log. Yeah. Yeah.
1: All right, so. It's like two houses.
0: Well, I'm sure one was added on later. Yeah,
1: you can tell. the.
0: Yeah, you can tell.
1: It looks like the one closer was added on.
0: Alright, so we're not going to go too deep into the Perrin family because everyone knows this story. But I'm going to read a lot of it because I did find some inconsistencies with um, one of the daughters who still talks about this to this day. And I'll go over that after the episode with my notes. In January 1971, the Perrin family moved into a 14-room farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island where Carolyn, Roger, and their five daughters began to notice strange things happening almost immediately. It started small. Carolyn would notice that the broom went missing or seemed to move from place to place on its own. She would hear the sound of something scraping against the kettle in the kitchen when no one was there. She'd find small piles of dirt in the center of a newly cleaned floor.
1: I'd be pissed.
0: (laughs) The girls began to notice spirits around the house though for the most part, they were harmless. There were a few, however, that were angry. Carolyn allegedly researched the history of the home and discovered that it had been in the same family for eight generations and that many of them have died under mysterious or horrible circumstances. Several of the children had drowned in a nearby creek, one was murdered, and a few of them hanged themselves in the attic. The spirit that was depicted in the film, Bathsheba, was the worst of them all. Whoever the spirit was, she perceived herself to be the mistress of the house and she resented the competition my mother posed for that position, said Angeria Perrin, the oldest of the five girls. It turns out there was actually a real person named Bathsheba Sherman who lived on the Perrin's property In the mid-1800s, she was rumored to have been a Satanist, and there was evidence that she had been involved in the death of a neighbor's child. Though no trial ever took place, she was buried in a nearby Baptist cemetery in downtown Harrisville, and her tombstone is now gone.
1: What happened to the tombstone? Someone took it.
0: The parents believed that it was Bathsheba's spirit that was tormenting them. According to Andrea, the family experienced other spirits as well as what smelled like rotting flesh and would cause beds to rise off the floor. She claims her father would enter the basement and feel a cold, stinking presence behind him. They often stayed away from the dirt floor and cellar, but the heating equipment would often fail, mysteriously causing Roger to venture down. Over the ten years that the family lived in the house, the Warrens made multiple trips to investigate. At one point, Lorraine conducted a seance to attempt to contact the spirits that were possessing the family. During the seance, Carolyn Perrin became possessed, speaking in tongues and rising from the ground in a chair. Andrea claims to have secretly witnessed the seance. I thought I was going to pass out, Andrea said. My mother began to speak a language I'd never heard of and a voice that was not her own. Her chair levitated and then she was thrown across the room. Though the movie version of events culminates with Ed performing an exorcism rather than a seance, Lorraine insists that she and her husband would never attempt one, as they must be performed by a Catholic priest. After the seance, Roger kicked the Warrens out, worried about his wife's mental stability. According to Andrea, the family continued to live in the house due to financial instability until they were able to move in 1980, at which point the spirits were silenced and the haunting ceased. All right. So here's my problem with Andrea Perrin. Now, I believe the Perrin house. Why? I just do. A lot less inconsistencies through the stories. I watched four four interviews with Andrea. Oh,
1: uh, I I agree. I, I definitely change, believe in that.
0: The only change in Andrea's story was I wrote it down. If I could find the damn thing, here it is. All right. Lorraine was dead set on Bathsheba creating the hauntings because Lorraine knew of the story of the supposed witch, but all the daughters of the parents to this day say it was not Bathsheba, where Andrea just said it was Bathsheba. So, in the same note, Andrea Perrin has been seen on multiple videos saying it was Bathsheba and not Bathsheba. In an interview for video in a video interview on historyversehollywood.com the video is about Bathsheba creating the haunting where Andrea Perrin on record is saying she as in Bathsheba but then on the YouTube channel the Grim Life Collective which is a great show Andrea Perrin tells the host flat out they never believed it was Bathsheba
1: so which one is it either she's lying right why
0: they don't know who's doing that to the house It could be Bathsheba. But why did her story change?
1: Yeah. And she's old enough to know. I would take what the younger ones say. Because they're not going to make something up. They
0: might not remember it. I don't know how old they were during this.
1: Mm. At least not the baby.
0: (sighs) All right. Let's take a look at this picture again. Uh, Who are they? Do, 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 do.
1: was on the... so, I'm assuming she's the older yeah, one, but old then one. it looks like the There's other that one. There's not huge of
0: a gap between them, so maybe. No, like two. But none of the others go on.
1: Two years.
0: None of the others take uh, part in these interviews. All I read about is Andrew Parent.
1: Well, she wants the money.
0: So the Parent family. Mm.
1: She's money hungry.
0: I believe the parent family, because I've also watched a lot of other things about that house, and people feeling instantly creeped out the second they enter it.
1: I I agree with that.
0: So, I mean, you guys let us know what you think. What do you think about the parent house?
1: I do believe that one, okay. 110%.
0: Alright, so now we're going to move on to one of the most documented hauntings of all time. And you know it as the Enfield Poltergeist. It was a poltergeist that happened in England. Where this house right here. Nope, that's the parent house. That's the parent house. (laughs) The Enfield house is this little quaint house. Does that say Jesus house? Yeah. In the window? Yep. So that's the real... That's the real setting for The Conjuring 2, also known as the Enfield Poltergeist. Six years after the parent family was terrorized Mm. by. What? Move it. Huh?
1: Move that over. Thank you.
0: (laughs) Six years after the parent family was terrorized by their demons, another family in Enfield, England began to experience similar things. In August of 1977, the Hodgson family started seeing and hearing strange things. Janet, who was 11 at the time, recalled sitting up in bed to see her dresser slide across the room that she shared with her brother.
1: Why does all this stuff happen in the 70s and you don't hear about it anymore?
0: We still hear about it.
1: Well, yeah, we do, but it seems like it was more of it in the 70s.
0: I guess there was more drugs in the 70s. I don't know. We shouted, Mom, Mom, said Janet. We're sort of frightened, but also intrigued. What? (laughs) Later, the family began to hear knocking coming from all sorts of places in the house. She remembers her mom thinking there were burglars or drifters hiding out in the home and calling the police to investigate. The officer who arrived reported witnessing a chair rise up and move across the floor on its own. Then he was out. (laughs) Reporters from the Daily Mirror, who were also called in to report on the Enfield haunting, experienced them for themselves, too. So two groups (laughs) of people witnessed this, one being a cop, two being reporters. The cop isn't going to have a pony in either show, and the reporters are out there to prove you wrong. Right. So that helps. Legos and marbles were reportedly flying around the room, hot to the touch when picked up. Clothing folded on tabletops would leap off and fly across the room. The sound of dogs barking would be heard in empty rooms. Lights would flicker, coins would drop out of thin air, and furniture would spin or tip over without being touched. Then one day, the iron fireplace in an upstairs bedroom was ripped out of the wall. Wow. That's crazy. After that, paranormal investigators from all over the world showed up, claiming to be able to contact spirits and wanting to know more about the Enfield haunting. Most of them decided that the children had been faking their experiences as one of them had admitted to doing so on one occasion, but the Warrens were different. They showed up and immediately believed there was a dynamic (laughs) presence present. However, their claims were overlooked as a noted skeptic at the time accused Ed Warren of exaggerating and even making up incidents, often transforming a haunting into one case of demonic possession. This is where the story differs from the movie, as there was no exorcism-like practice from the Warrens. In 1979, two years after they began, the hauntings abruptly stopped, though the family maintains they did nothing to stop them. So,
1: mm. good. I don't think it's not just going to stop.
0: Well, they might have stopped fucking with that
1: family. Mm.
0: It's happened in a few cases. So, they also had the uh, Enfield daughter, Janet, levitating, which I have a picture of. Yeah, that's not levitation.
1: No. That that's looks jumping like she's off a bed. Jumping off the bed.
0: You can see footprints from the bed. But there was another case where um, I don't have the video. When she changed her voice and talked like the old dude. Yeah. That was not a little girl. There's no way she was able to do that. They've proved that. Over and over and over and over and yes. over again, so I think something happened there. I don't think it's a full-on crazy possession, but I think that place is a little haunted. Plus, where mm-hmm. in England is not haunted? <laughs> as long as That's what that place true. is.
1: I, I guess it's <clears just throat> the spirits.
0: It could have been half and half. Like I think it was half and half. I think, but like you said, the reporters saw this shit happen. Other ghost hunters have saw this shit happen. The Warrens didn't play a major role in that, even though the movie shows that they got rid of... Yeah, they did.
1: You know, the but, nine, but... The other thing is, um, if that spirit is or demon is hooked to a piece of furniture or something and they got rid of it, maybe it left. Maybe. It's possible. It could come in with the furniture. Because there was the
0: chair that old guy died on. Right. It was real, and that wasn't part of the conjuring, too.
1: Well, I know. All right, so. So, do you believe it? Parts. Yeah.
0: Parts. That voice that came out of that. If you YouTube it, you can find it. It's not doctored because you couldn't doctor shit back then. No. Well, you could, but it was hard to do. But that sounded like a straight up demon. Alright, so... So,
1: I guess the demon just left the little girl?
0: Maybe she grew out of it. Maybe they threw something out it was attached to. Maybe. Who knows? We don't have enough evidence to prove they even exist, let alone how long they stay. (laughs) That's true. What do you want from me?
1: (laughs) God damn it, you're supposed to know everything.
0: Alright, so the next case... Arnie Johnson. Arnie Johnson, who is right here. That's the real Arnie Johnson, the guy who killed the dude in the dog kennel and said the devil made him do it. Let's get into the list a little bit. Arnie Johnson and Debbie Gladwell provided first-hand accounts for the version of events depicted in Discovery's channel A Haunting Episode, Where Demons Dwell. They said their father was an eyewitness to demonic possession. Both Johnson and Debbie were adamant in their support of the Warrens' recollection of events. They asserted that paranormal activity began after they went to clean up a rental property they had just acquired. David recollected that an old man appeared, pushing and terrifying him. The couple initially thought David was using the old man as an excuse to avoid cleaning, but David informed them that the old man had vowed to harm the Glassells if they move into the rental house. David's visions of the old man included the man appearing as a demonic beast who muttered Latin and threatened to steal his soul. Although the family allegedly heard strange noises coming from the attic, no one but David ever witnessed the old man. After David experienced night terrors, exhibited strange behavior, and obtained Uh, unexplained scratches and bruises, the family called upon the services of a Catholic priest who attempted to bless the house. The terrified family concluded that the house was evil and would no longer continue to rent it. David's visions worsened, occurring in the daytime as well. Twelve days after the original incident, the family summoned the self-proclaimed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren to assist. Lorraine allegedly witnessed a black mist materialized next to David. I've seen a black mist.
1: Yes. I've seen it too. But it never did anything. Well,
0: it materialized because you saw it.
1: Well, yeah, but I'm saying it wasn't bad. Like, it didn't destroy anything. An
0: apparent indication of a malevolent presence. Debbie and her mother told the Warrens they had seen David being beaten and choked by invisible hands and the red marks had appeared on his neck afterwards. What do you mean it didn't do nothing? It tore my closet apart twice.
1: Oh, well, yeah, but... That's a little thing. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay. We'll get into yeah. our horror story one, one of these episodes. we got to write everything down. David had started to growl, hiss, speak in otherworldly voices and recite passages from the Bible or Paradise Lost. The was recanted how each night a family member would remain awake with David as he suffered through spasms and convulsions. After receiving a prognosis of multiple possessions from the Warrens, David was subjected to three lesser exorcisms. Lorraine asserted, asserts that David levitated, ceased breathing for a time, and even demonstrating the supernatural ability of pre- precognition, specifically in relation to the manslaughter Johnson would later commit. In, 18, in 1980, the Warrens contacted Brookfield Police to warn them that the situation was becoming dangerous. According to eyewitness testimony, Arnie Johnson coerced one of the demons from David to possess him while participating in David's exorcism. It is here that a haunting veers away from the circumstances of Johnson's possession as described by those involved. According to the show, a few days after Johnson egged the demon on during the exorcism, He was attacked rather viciously by the demon, which allegedly took control of his car and forced it into a tree. But Arnie was unharmed. After this incident, Johnson returned to the rental property to examine an old well that supposedly housed the demon. In both the dramatized version and his personal account, Johnson said that this was his final encounter with the demon while completely lucid. After encountering the demon at the well and making eye contact with it, He became possessed. The Warrens claimed to have warned him not to do this, although their warning was not mentioned in a haunting. As David's condition worsened further, Debbie and Johnson, who had been living in their mother's home, decided it was time to move. Debbie was hired by Alan Bono, a new resident in Brookfield, as a dog groomer. Debbie and Johnson began renting an apartment close to her place of employment. After moving in, Johnson started to exhibit old behavior that was strikingly similar to David's, causing Debbie to fear that he had become possessed as well. According to Debbie, Johnson would fall into a trance-like state wherein he would growl and hallucinate, but later have no memory of it. In February 16, 1981, Arnie called in sick to his job at the tree service company and joined Debbie at the kennel where she worked, along with his sister Wanda and Debbie's nine-year-old cousin Mary. Bono, the company's landlord and Debbie's employer at the kennel, bought the group lunch at a local bar and proceeded to drink heavily. After lunch, the group returned to the kennel. Debbie then took the girls to get pizza, but insisted they return quickly, anticipating trouble. When they returned, Bono, intoxicated at this point, became agitated. Everyone left the room at Debbie's urging except Bono, who seized Mary and refused to let go. Johnson headed back to the apartment and ordered Bono to release Mary. Wanda recounted the events to the police. Mary ran for the car as Debbie attempted to mitigate the situation by standing between the two men. Wanda tried in vain to pull Johnson away. Johnson, growling like an animal, then drew a five-inch pocket knife and stabbed Bono repeatedly. Bono died several hours later. According to Johnson's lawyer, Bono had suffered... F- Four or five tremendous wounds, mostly to his chest, and one that was stretched from his stomach to the base of his heart. Johnson was discovered two miles from the site of the killing and was held at Bridgeport Correctional Center on bail of $125,000. This was the first unlawful killing in the history of Brookfield, Connecticut. The day after the killing, Lorraine Warren informed the Brookfield police that Johnson was possessed when the crime was committed. A media blitz soon surrounded the story, fueled in part by the Warrens, whose agents promised that lectures, a book, and a movie detailing the gruesome case were in the works. Martin Manella, Johnson's lawyer, received calls from all over the world about what was being called the Demon Murder Trial. Manella traveled to England to meet with lawyers who had been involved in two similar cases, though neither went to trial. He planned to bring in exorcism specialists from Europe and threatened to subpoena the priest who oversaw David Glatzel's exorcism if they did not cooperate with the defense. The trial took place in Connecticut Superior Court in Danbury.
1: Hey, we know where Danbury is. I know where that is. Very
0: well. Beginning on October 28, 1981, Manila attempted to submit a plea of not guilty by virtue of possession. But the presiding judge, Robert Callahan, promptly rejected this defense. Callahan argued that no such defense could ever exist in a court of law due to the lack of evidence that it would be irrelevant and unscientific to allow related testimony. The defense chose to imply the Johnson Act in self-defense. Because of this, the jury was not legally allowed to consider demonic possession as a viable explanation for the killing. The jury deliberated for 15 hours over three days before convicting Johnson on November 24, 1981 of first-degree manslaughter. On December 18, 1981, he was sentenced to 10 to 20 years in prison, though he only served five. The incident led to the creation of a television film entitled The Demon Murder Case on NBC and preparations of a feature film. The production of which was stalled due to internal conflicts. In 1983, Gerald Brittle, with the assist of Lorraine Warren, published a book about the incident entitled The Devil in Connecticut. Lorraine Warren stated the profits from the book were shared with the family. Sources confirmed that $2,000 was paid to the family by the book publisher. Upon the book's republication in 2006, David Glatzel and his brother Carl Glatzel sued the authors and book publishers for violating their right to privacy and intentional infliction of emotional distress. Really? Carl also claimed that the book alleged he committed criminal and abusive acts against his family and others. He said that the possession story was a hoax concocted by Ed and Lorraine Warren to exploit the family and his brother's mental illness. That the book presented him as the villain because he did not believe in the supernatural claims. He asserted that the Warrens told him the story would make the family millionaires and would get help get Johnson out of jail. According to Carl Gladstone, public, the publicity generated by the incident forced him to drop out of school and lose friends and business opportunities. In 2007, he began writing a book titled Alone Through the Valley about his version of the events surrounding his brother. Lorraine Warren defended her work with the family, claiming that the six priests who were involved in the incident agreed at the time the boy was possessed and that the supernatural events she described were real. Brittle, author of The Devil in Connecticut, says he wrote the book because the family wanted the story told, that he possesses video over 100 hours of his interviews with the family, and that they signed off of the book as accurate before it went to print. Ah, so they have proof. Wow. Glatzel's father, Carl Glatzel Sr., denies telling the author that his son was possessed. He has tapes, asshole. <laughs> Johnson and Debbie, now married, wholeheartedly support the Warrens' account of demonic possessions and have stated that the Glatzels in question are suing simply for monetary purposes. Yes. So, with the tapes and six priests, the priests aren't going to make any money off this. So, there, there's no hat in the in the thing for this. Well, they could put it towards the Catholic Church. But you're not going to go up and uh-huh. above and lie as a fucking priest to uh-huh. make, what, five grand off this crazy big book no. deal? So, hey, there's evidence of this one. I'd like to see the 100 hours of interview with the family.
1: I'm sure it's out there somewhere.
0: Hard to find shit to So what do you think about The Devil Made Me Do It?
1: I do believe it.
0: Okay. Very good.
1: What do you think? Um. They have a hundred hours.
0: I think he was possessed. For the girlfriend right. and everyone saying that he wasn't acting himself or... Especially right after that happened, I can see it. I'm not hating on that one. And we're back. Quick little break to carry a couple things, but let's get into the Snedeker House, which we can picture right over uh, here. Snedeker House. There it is. It's pretty. It's a nice house. Pretty big. There's a reason why it's so big. Let's get into the story of the Snedeker House. In 1986, Carmen and Al Snedeker moved to the small town of Southington, Connecticut with the purpose of being closer to the hospital at which their oldest son was being treated for Hodgkin's, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Having fallen on hard financial times, the family jumped at the chance to rent what appeared to be the perfect house. It was large enough for their family, which included three children and a cousin, and the rent was in their affordable price range. It was while they were moving in that Al made a startling discovery. In the basement was a pe- peculiar room that was complete with embalming tables and tools. The house, it turned out, used to be a funeral home. Moreover, the basement, which was sectioned into several rooms, was the only room deemed large enough to serve as the two boys' bedroom. Not long after, Carmen says, she began experiencing strange phenomena, like items disappearing and her children reporting seeing strange people in the house, as well as hearing voices and the sounds of hundreds of birds taking flight. Her oldest, who was at the time in the middle of radiation treatment, began to exhibit radical personality shifts. Becoming withdrawn and angry, he brooded and began writing poetry with necrophilic themes. During one intense episode, he attacked his cousin with the intent to rape her. His family had him arrested and taken for an evaluation where he was pronounced schizophrenic. He was removed from the house and seemed to get better until returning. Other phenomena that was reported by the Snedekers including the repeated and brutal rape of both Carmen and her niece, as well as acts of sodomy being performed on her husband by unseen entities. Mop water was reported the term blood red, and the sense of rotting fish and decay, flesh. flesh and decay, were reported throughout the house. She was also frightened of apparitions that she saw, one with long black hair and black eyes, the other with white hair and white eyes, and wearing a pinstripe tuxedo. It was then that Carmen decided to contact controversial paranormal investigators, Lorraine and Ed and Lorraine Warren. Along with John Zaffis and a few investigators, the Warrens moved into the house for several weeks, nine weeks to be exact, until they'd experienced everything the Snedekers claimed. During their time in the house, they claimed to have seen firsthand the damage the demons in the home could inflict, with many members being slapped and beaten, pushed and slammed to the floor. Investigation into the history of the house supposedly revealed that one of the undertakers at the funeral home was found guilty of necrophilia, which fed fuel to the fire. It got to the point that the Warrens deemed it necessary for a full-scale exorcism of the property, after which the house was judged, cleared by the Warrens, with the evil banished from the house. That should have been the end of the story, but it wasn't. Like another Warren investigation, the infamous Lutz House in Amityville, there have been numerous claims by people who lived in the house, both before and after the Snedeker family, that there have never been any evil entities in the house. In fact, the family's claim to have no knowledge that the home was once a funeral parlor was refuted by the house's owner. Perhaps the most damning evidence that the whole event was a hoax came from horror novelist Ray Garten, who was contacted to write the book in a dark place with the Warrens and Snedekers. According to Garten, it was difficult to write the true story because none of the involved parties could keep their story straight. It seemed everyone was contradicting everyone else. And we watched this old Sally Jesse Raphael special about this.
1: Yes, we did.
0: And the mom had to lead the charge. Anytime the husband said too much, the mom would stop him. Every time the kids said too much, the mom would stop him. You can find that online. I didn't want to put copyright material on here but the mom had to lead the charge and they had a um a skeptic on with ed Warren, and he kept arguing with them i don't know about you but when i know i'm right i'm not arguing with people like when someone says something okay he was getting heated like trying to prove his point yeah i have a whole series of notes for that and i think i have the snedeker family right here Yep, so that guy was raped by a ghost. This one, sad to say... I'm calling bullshit. Yeah, me too. Cool story. Made a good movie, The Haunting in Connecticut. But I'm calling bullshit.
1: If you're in there nine weeks...
0: Here's the thing. Your kid is sick with cancer... You're stressed the fuck out. The whole family's stressed the fuck out. You saw a bunch of shit that wasn't there. And that happens. When we went through a paranormal investigation, we went through 45 minutes of questions. These are all questions this family would have failed. Yes. So I'm calling the Snedeker case.
1: Hoax. Yeah, I'm not buying it.
0: Alright, let's move on to the Smurl family. The Smurls moved into a double block house on Chase Street in West Pinson, Pennsylvania in August 1986. Here is the Smurl House. Sorry about the blurry picture, but you can see by the cars this was taken in the 80s. They didn't really have these fancy digital cameras now. So that's that's the Smurl House. This one made a great... TV. I don't know if it was a TV movie, or it was just came to TV really quick, but it was called The Haunting. It was a scary fucking movie. It was good. It's on YouTube now. You just have to watch it, like how you watch stuff in the 80s, and like uh, right. 4 by 3 <laughs> Maybe one day I'll get through it. Alright, so they claim that the premises was disturbed by a demon that caused loud noises and bad odors, threw their dog into a wall, shook their mattress, pushed one of their daughters down a flight of stairs, and physically and sexually assaulted family members on several occasions. In 1986, the family brought in a parademonologist, Ed and Lorraine Warren. According to Ed Warren, the demon that inhabited the Smurls' home was very powerful, and it shook mirrors and furniture after they tried to persuade it to leave by playing religious music and praying. Warren, claimed he felt a drop in temperature and saw a dark mask form in the house. And the demon once left a message on a mirror telling him to get out. After months of investigation, Warren alleged that he had a number of audio tapes containing knocking and rapping and caused by the demon. See, I don't count knocking and rapping because, see how easy that is? That was a ghost. Look, my hands are here. I mean, no, that's not enough for me. It never has been. Professor Paul Kurtz of State University of New York at Buffalo, and then chairman of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, said the Warrens weren't objective, independent, or impartial investigators and characterized the Smurl's claims as a hoax, a charade, and a ghost story. Kurtz said that the family's claims were possibly due to delusions, hallucinations, or brain impairment, and advised that they submit themselves to psychiatric and psychological examinations. Jack Smurl told a newspaper reporter that he had surgery to remove water from his brain in 1983 because he had been experiencing short-term memory loss due to a case of meningitis in his youth. Allentown, Allentown, I know where Allentown is. Mm -hmm. Psychologist, psychologist, psychologist Robert Gordon commented that people often look at demonology to explain many tensions that they experience as individuals and within their families. Spokespeople for the Roman Catholic Church, the Diocese of Scranton, said that they were unsure of what might be causing the disturbance. St. Bonaventure University theology professor Alphonus Trabuloid said there might be other less explanations. The home was blessed by several priests who said they saw no harmful activity while on the property. Janet Smurl claimed an identified, unidentified priest performed three unsuccessful exorcisms and the demon avoided the rites by moving between the double block home and following the family to other locations. In 1986, a priest from the local diocese spent two nights at the Smurl House and said nothing unusual happened during his stay there. In 1986, the Smurls told the press they were tired of the constant media bombardment. However, within a few months, they had authored... Along with Anna Lorraine Warren and Scranton newspaper Robert Curran, a a paperback book version of the story called The Haunted, published by St. Martin's Press. The book was criticized by reviewers such as wilkes Bear Times leader staff writer Joseph Masorek, who wrote, Robert Curran forsakes the principles of his trade to give readers a one-sided account of what did or didn't occur over several years in Jack and Janet Smurl's former home. Reviewer Mary Beth Gaiman wrote that the book was poorly written, adding that it is hard to conceive of a supposedly sophisticated objective, and as far as I know, at least until now, credible reporter like Curran taking their story seriously, given the complete lack of empirical or physical evidence to support it. That sounds just like Rick Asuna believing everything that fucking Ronnie DeFeo told them. Mm-hmm. When there's fucking... I proved this on my shitty podcast that Dawn had nothing to do with it. But Asuna keeps saying it's Dawn. You're a fucking idiot, Rick Asuna. I said it. You can find my email. We could talk. The same year, the pastor of Immaculate Conception, Paris in West Pitson, Reverend Joseph Odonzio, said the Smurls felt that after intense prayers, things are back to normal. In 1987 janet smurl told reporters that they were still heard knocking and saw shadows after the smurl family moved to wilkes-barre deborah owens moved into the former smurl home in 1988 and told reporters she never encountered anything supernatural while living there in 1991 a two-hour made-for-tv movie titled the haunted was released by 20th century fox written by curran the warrens and the smurls and starring jeffrey damon ...as Jack Smurl... ...and Sally Croakland... ...as Janet Swore. That was a good movie, though.
1: Uh-huh.
0: The Warrens can make some damn movies.
1: I'm calling oh. bullshit. Oh, without a doubt.
0: Alright, so we're moving on. We're almost getting there. Getting there. We're going to talk about Union Cemetery. We have a picture... ...right about... ...yeah... One of the most haunted cemeteries in the world. Aren't most cemeteries haunted? Yes. <coughs> All right. Let's get through it. The story behind the evil place in Connecticut will make your blood turn cold. How much evil can one place hold? Well, according to Ed and Lorraine Warren, the answer was a lot. They even wrote a book about it, Graveyard, which chronicles a host of their most harrowing, fact based cases. Of ghostly visitations, demonic stalking, heart-wrenching, otherworldly encounters, and horrifying comeuppance from the spirit world. The two were self-proclaimed demonologists who investigated the paranormal. They checked out a variety of haunted places in Connecticut. With over 300 years of history and 50 years of reported ghost sightings, Union Cemetery is listed as one of the haunted places in the entire country. During these uncertain visits... Please keep safety in mind and consider adding destinations to your bucket list to visit at a later date. Union Cemetery is supposedly home to a number of ghosts. Sightings range from soldiers on horseback to harmless giggling children, but the vast majority of reports are of the famous White Lady. The White Lady is an identified woman who frequently turns up on nearby roads. Another common operation that is frequently reported is red eyes. Visitors report feeling an eerie sensation that they are being watched. They will often feel hot breath across their neck when they turn around. They can see a lot of red eyes watching them from the distance. Many visitors claim to feel absolutely nothing. Of course, there are those who are complete skeptics and don't believe this is one of the most haunted places in Connecticut. But the stories persist, and many residents avoid the cemetery altogether, especially at night. Over the years, many investigations have been performed. Many paranormal experts claim to have collections of strange photos and recordings, unexplained fogs. You can always explain fog. Cold spots, strange footprints, and glowing orbs. Orbs is the stupidest shit I've ever heard.
1: Can I put that on record? I saw one. It's
0: fucking dust.
1: I saw one. It was dust. I saw one. Okay.
0: Okay, orbs through a photo or dust?
1: I agree with that.
0: Want to see a haunting photo taken on site? How about hearing the voice of the white lady? These paranormal investigators think they have proof of the famous ghost. Decide for yourself. If you guys want to go to the cemetery, it's on One Stepney Road, Easton, Connecticut. But be respectful. It closes at sunset. Uh oh, nah cemetery's always got some weird creepy shit going on, and then all of a sudden, Ed Warren says there's a demon. I'm starting to see a fucking trend here. Everything's a demon,
1: mm-hmm.
0: There's a lot of fucking demons. I think there's more demons than people.
1: right I would agree. all right, so, I think Whoa. he just made shit up. <laughs>
0: so we're going to do the last story we have here uh, it's not the last but this, this West Point story is out of control and it's just way too long <laughs> maybe we'll hit the high notes but I want to get into my notes so West Point of course is haunted everyone knows that but the next one up is the Borley Church Hauntings as you can see right here I don't have the church. I know I have the church. Uh, you know, you could really help out and that talk, that talk that while that I'm doing it. this. I'm it's like me. you're just here to look pretty. Here's the church. That yeah, looks like a creepy fucking church. Is that a bed over there?
1: Uh, that's what Maybe I thought a tomb? at first. I don't know what that is. Hard
0: to tell. Hard to tell. All right, it's, so let's get into the Borley Church hall. It's like
1: hallings. a little temple.
0: Borley Rectory was constructed on Hall Road near Borley Church by the Reverend Harry Dawson Ellis, built in 1862. He moved in a year after being named Rector of the Parish. The house replaced an early rectory on the site that had been destroyed by a fire in 1841. It was eventually enlarged by the addition of a wing to house Bull's family of 14 children. (sighs) The nearby church, the nave of which may date from the 12th century, Serves as a scattered rural community of three hamlets that make up the parish. There are several substantial farmhouses and the fragmentary remains of Borley Hall. Once the seat of the Wellgrave family, ghost hunters quote the legend of Benedict Monastery, supposedly built in the area in about 1362, according to which a monk from the monastery conducted a relationship with a nun from a nearby covenant. After their affair was discovered, the monk was executed and the nun reportedly bricked up alive in the convent walls. Oh, okay. It was confirmed in 1938 that this legend had no historical basis known and could have been fabricated by the rector's children to romanticize their Gothic-style Red Book rectory. The story of the walling up the the nun may have come from Rider Haggard's novel Montezuma's Daughter in 1893, Or Walter Scott's epic poem, Marmion, in 1808. So, I don't have much about what Ed Lorraine Warren said about this. I'm sure there was a demon.
1: I'm sure there was.
0: (laughs) Alright, so we'll just start a little bit about the West Point ghost. Because this uh, is interesting. The U.S. Military Academy's buildings are covered with textured granites, turrets, and perched gargoyles that gaze over cadets as they go about their day. Inside the large wooden doors, they walk through dimly lit hallways with triangular stone arches and wrought iron windows. Cadets over the years said that they have shared feelings as if they were being observed by an unseen presence just to find no one there. While others have reported encountering apparitions in the middle of the night, this was frequently documented during the 1970s when a ghost visited the barracks. In 1972, West Point experienced an explosion of national inquiry and publicity because of a well-documented apparition that attracted famous demonologists, ghost hunters, and psychic mediums of the last century to investigate, but it was just one of West, Coast, West, Point's, West, Coast. West,
1: Coast. <laughs> West
0: Point's ghostly tales. The story below were sourced from more than 40 years of correspondence, and we're not going to go through all of them. Because I don't, I don't even have Ed on the reins so it really just branches out. But yeah, I'm sure Ed saw a demon. <laughs> Damn. All right, so I mean, these guys covered a lot. This has been an interesting story, but let's really break this down, okay? The Snedeker family, <sighs> Special and Sally, Jesse Raphael are from the early '90s. Like I said, she would not let their family talk. And why the hell did the Warrens have to stay there for a nine and a half weeks?
1: They were writing a book.
0: I know haunting doesn't show up right away, but you're talking a lot over nine and a half weeks.
1: Yeah, they did that for the book. They didn't.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Supernatural Night with the Warrens. These are available on YouTube on their official. And Tony Spear runs all of them. There are quite a few of these videos available, and they seem fully, completely staged and completely rehearsed. They will talk about moments from 30 years ago and not miss a single, single detail. How?
1: I don't even remember what I had for dinner last night, well, let alone I'm 30, so years 30 years ago. ago.
0: He remembers every slip he took. It's, it's bullshit.
1: Do you remember where you were 30 years ago? <sighs>
0: probably coming home from little league it's nine o'clock the Perrin family like i said she's been caught saying different things on multiple occasions but i still believe the parent family because the only thing that has changed in her telling this story is bathsheba, is bathsheba. but lorraine hooking on the bathsheba makes sense because she knows there's a bathsheba in the area it helps create that problem the Amityville inconsistencies with the Warrens. Ed Warren states that the priest told the Lutz family not to take anything with them. This is the first time I heard this, and I can't find it anywhere else. Ed even got the price of the sale of the Amityville's house wrong on the night of the Warrens. He can remember pixies over bridges and where the bridge stood, but he can not remember how much the Amityville house, the one that made his fucking career.
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'm nitpicking, but that would bother me. Claims Ronald DeFeo Jr. was in the Black Magic. Um, No, there's no proof of that. No. Any of the articles found of Black Magic was George Lutz, which has been proven he was into the occult. So this moron found the Black Magic stuff way after the Lutzes moved out, because Lutz wouldn't go back in the building and said it was Ronald DeFeo. So he doesn't even have a story straight here.
1: No, he doesn't.
0: The Smurl case, haunted for 13 years before looking for the Warrens, all of a sudden, hey, we should go check this out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and Smurls were also getting raped, right? Yes. <coughs> yes, yes, they, they were, were getting, getting raped, raped. by the And we're going to wait 13 years. Demons. Says that this family was the chosen ones. This is what Ed said. He, they were the chosen ones. God wanted to challenge this all-American family
1: yeah horseshit.
0: now Ed Warren also called this a shadow ghost a term Ed Warren uses to describe this type of haunting I can't find this term anywhere on the internet google, duck duck go, anything did he make this term up or is this a widely used term in the demonologist world why is there no background to be found about a type of ghost weird
1: it is very weird.
0: Especially in this day, I can find the entire fucking Klingon language completely made up.
1: Yeah, but online, nothing but about that.
0: Yeah. It has literally no documentation or degrees calling him to be a self-titled demonologist. Lorraine is accredited by a few universities to excel in psychic power. I'm not doubting Lorraine's sensitive cuz she actually did help find a couple things. So, I think, here's my final synopsis, since we're at about an hour and 15 minutes. I think they're full of
1: shit. Do you think both of them are full of shit? Yes. Everything I think they do it just for the the books, the movies. I'll tell I you. I mean, yes, things are haunted. I do believe in ghosts.
0: Oh, I completely believe in ghosts. But these two... They go... Everything's a
1: fucking demon. They're a little extra. Guess what? Everything's I mean, not a fucking demon.
0: Can no. we relax?
1: Mm-mm. So... I bet you if they would've came to our old house, they would've been... You have a
0: demon. The only two hauntings <laughs> out of theirs... Two and a half. I believe Amityville is haunted. Yes. Just because the area, it seems like it's haunted... I believe the Parent house is haunted. I don't believe the other places are haunted. No. Now, you know what, though? I do believe the Snedeker house is haunted, but not as bad as they're making it out to be. It's a funeral. home. How is it not haunted? Exactly. So, I'm three and a half. And the Enfield, I haven't been able to prove that a little girl could pull off that voice. I haven't seen it since. No one's seen it since. So, Ed and Lorraine, I'm calling pure fucking fiction. They can make hell of a good movies, and I'll tell you what, when Ed died, he was worth $12 million. Never had a job. No. They were just writers. Lorraine died without eighty-two million, but you can thank uh, New Line Cinema and The Conjuring for that.
1: Right. Uh, yeah.
0: But I do want to get rich before Tony Spira is ready to retire and sell everything, because you know he's going to sell it all. He's been in it for the money since day one.
1: Oh, definitely.
0: I reached out to Tony spirit to have him on the podcast. We got no answer, so I'm going to say what I want to say. You've been in it for the money since day fucking one. Mm-hmm. Your little mod. Nobody needs a moderator to talk about their hauntings. No. And now you're carrying around all this shit to conventions. I thought it had if, to be locked it's... in a room that was blessed once right. a week.
1: Right, all the trinkets or whatever they got from each haunting. And the wood case
0: is going to keep Annabelle safe while you're transporting her?
1: Uh, Yeah, I'm not buying that.
0: Mm -hmm. Like I said, this has opened my eyes to a lot. I believe in ghosts. I do not believe the Warrens. And that sucks because I love the fucking movies.
1: I love the Warrens, but... No, I, I agree with you i agree with you there's
0: so we're going fiction 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 this was heavily researched i watched a lot of shit i listened to way too much of tony Spears' fucking voice to get through this (laughs) i think i watched all of them i I really do
1: i've only watched a few
0: yeah i watched all of them just trying to get little sound bites little instances little feelings Now, we'll never generally be able to say they were full of shit, but I'm going to come out and say they were full of shit. The only things I believe are haunted is the Abneyville house. Because there's still questions about that night. I'm not talking about the Lutz family after. That could be completely fucking made up. But a lot of shit before that and a lot of shit that night doesn't make sense. The Perrin Mm -hmm. family, I've heard thousands of accounts of people getting shitty feelings while walking there yeah now you could check out the grim life I'm going to actually reach out to those guys I really like what they do I just found them recently but his wife's a little sensitive but she doesn't play that role like she's not trying to be Lorraine Warren and they're not trying to play that part but she had a hard time walking up towards that house and i watched every video they go to a lot of fucking crazy places she's never had trouble
1: and that's the other thing. Going back to the nine and a half weeks at the house, but that you, I don't. I mean,
0: odds are you're going to see something within two weeks. You're
1: going to feel the present either walking into the house or when you Not get really. inside.
0: We had three years before we felt anything.
1: No, but I'm saying when the when the psychic came. Yeah, but
0: we won't. We wouldn't know what the psychic would feel the day we moved in.
1: I'm telling you, it didn't happen until you brought that damn couch in. Well,
0: that couch was free, so it's for me.
1: <laughs> yes, that's when all hell broke loose. I think was. it was
0: before that. I think it was before that.
1: Somebody died on that couch and you just brought it right into the house. No one
0: died on the <laughs> Ikea couch. Come on now. You act like it's been in like a fucking living room since 1865. That couch was like <laughs> six years old. It was too fucking low for anyone to really sit in anyway.
1: The dog liked it. I liked it. I liked it in there. It was nice. It looked
0: nice in there. But we ramble. (laughs) We got some more content coming up. If you guys want ideas for shows, we still have... What is this? May? June, July, August to get through. Just bring me to the haunts. I need some fog in these lungs. Well, we'll be able to um, do the review for Brighton's Halfway to Halloween. Yes, I've we been can. working on that. We got to do commercial coming out. It's gonna show off everything in the store. But uh make sure you like and subscribe. There's a little dot over here of the whole video. We'd appreciate it. We're growing. I mean, I'm excited to see it. I thought it'd be a little faster, but
1: it's growing. This
0: shit takes time, and that's fine. I enjoy doing it.
1: Rome wasn't built in one day.
0: Well. <laughs> Halloween Haunts has been around since 2015, so we'll get there. We'll get there. Got anything else for the people? I do not. Any news? Any worthy This news has been tomorrow? fun. I know. You're getting tired.
1: I am tired. It's been a long week.
0: Can't, can't keep up? No. Can't keep up. Well, this has been The Warrens, Fact or Fiction. Hope you had fun. Tell us what you guys think. I have a feeling we're going to have a lot of similar thoughts. This has been Halloween Haunts 365.com the podcast where every day is haunt season. Goodbye.
1: Bye.